0: This is Cantus Firmus, Kingdom Theology for Christians Without a Country. Greetings, you are listening to Cantus Firmus. My name is Cody Cook, and my guest today is Matthew Ferris, the author of the book, If One Uses It Lawfully, The Law of Moses and the Christian Life. And Matthew, the reason I, I'm excited to have you on here, I'm glad I was able to find it on social media because I think I picked up your book just kind of on a lark. It was one of those things. Uh, maybe it was on, I can't remember the publisher. Was it was it Wiffenstock or was it Eerdmans? Or? It is Wiffenstock, yeah. So I, I think they were doing like a sale at one time on Kindle right. and it was like, you know, two two bucks or something like that. And I yeah. thought, oh, that sounds cool. And so I picked it up and it's, it's literally the best book I've ever read on the relationship of Christians to the law. So when I, when I found out that you were on Twitter and then uh, was able to reach out to you, I, w- I was really excited and, and I'm glad to be able to talk to you.
1: Well, so, yeah, I appreciate that. And uh, yeah, I did. I think the the Kindle version was a uh, two ninety
0: nine for a time. Yeah.
1: Um, yeah.
0: Um, and, I, and, and, it, and it's worth whatever it is now, whatever the retail <laughs> price of it is. If, if you're, if somebody's listening or watching, they should get it because it really is an excellent book. Um, Thank and you. so I, I set the expectations pretty high to start with, but i um, could you give me like an elevator pitch of, of, of the book? Just kind of a short version of, of what what your kind of view of the relationship of Christians to the law is. Sure.
1: So um I say in the beginning of the book that um that the law of Moses is not inconsistent with what we as Christians are called to. It's just not coextensive with it. Mm-hmm. So the law uh, came at a given point in time it was given to a certain people and it is located within a certain biblical covenant yeah that covenant has come to an end and with it the obligation of the law has also come to an end there's obviously a lot of caveats in there because of the way that the New Testament and, and Paul specifically uses the Old Testament um, but essentially, I'm saying that, and I think, you know, the view that I'm uh, critical of, uh, third use view, um, usually associated with Reformed theology, um, no one believes that the law justifies anyone. This is more a question of once we are justified, once we are Christians, what is the place of the law in the Christian life? And it's, it's that side of it that I'm um, examine and say, actually, the law uh, is not—it's um, not our guide. It's not our standard. It's not
0: um, what we're called to. So we jump with the third use. There's this idea that you talk about, like you see it like in reform circles. I think Luther said something kind of similar at some point right. too—that there's three main uses of the law. Right. And they, so I think the first use was about pointing out our our sins, something like that, reminding us that we need a savior, something to that effect.
1: Yeah, I mean. It, I the the numbering of them is less important, I oh. guess. So I would say the first use is really really to uh to restrain sin. And mm-hmm. you see this more like the, the civil use within Israel. Uh <clears throat> it it's a it's a check on lawlessness. Gotcha. The second use would be to reveal sin, to uncover uh really our hearts, right? And this is what Paul says in Romans, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And so the, the law in a sense reveals what's in our hearts. Um, Romans 7, he says, I, I would not have known coveting had not the law said, do not covet. So it has this uh, revealing function. Yeah. And then the third use is where some say, actually, now that we are Christians, now that we have the spirit within us, law is our guide. It's how mm-hmm. we know
0: how to please God. So, so I, think cool. I think I got- I think I got one and two reversed there, but but basically one and two, as we can, I mean, seems to have um, some roots in, I mean, I can think of verses off the top of my head where Paul says something like what you read in those sort of first two uses. Yes. Uh, but that third one is, is where we get a little trickier, right? Because right. if you read through Galatians, you sort of get the sense that, especially Galatians, that Paul is not too keen on Christians using the law as our guide, right?
1: <laughs> yes.
0: And really, I mean, I'd say
1: the title of the book, which comes from 1 Timothy one eight. You know, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. And then he goes on to kind of delineate a first use that is the law is for murderers and for kidnappers and all kinds of other things. It's not made for the righteous, but for
0: the unrighteous. Hmm. Interesting. So I I might get ahead of this because I feel like there's probably going to be people listening who are going to think that you're attacking the Old Testament. Right. Mm. And so and I'm very sensitive. I mean, I wrote, I wrote a whole book defending the old Testament against charges that it wasn't inspired and wasn't relevant. So, so, but, um, but I don't think that's what you're saying. So can you clarify why your argument that the old covenant law is not our standard is different than saying the old Testament is irrelevant and uninspired?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and that is definitely not what I'm saying. Um, you're probably familiar with, with Marcion and Marcionite, um, Teaching And that is that the Old Testament is basically, we can dispense with it. It doesn't have anything to do with us as New Covenant believers. I entirely reject that view. I, I repudiate anything that belongs to a Marcionite view of the Old Testament. Uh, to say that there is a covenantal difference or that there is um, progress in salvation history is a very different thing than to repudiate or to reject the Hebrew Bible. There are many, many places in the New Testament, Paul says, you know, whatever things were written before were written for our learning that through patience and comfort of the scriptures, we might have hope. He is talking about the Hebrew Bible. Or when he tells Timothy, you know, you you are uh, wise, to the scriptures are able to make you wise unto salvation. There, too, he's talking about the Hebrew Bible. Um, and and there's so many places where the New Testament references the Old Testament. So. My um, my view on the place of the law in the Christian life now is in no way uh, a demotion of the Hebrew Bible or of its authority, of its inspiration, of its of its value in the lives of Christians. There's so much um, typology that we get in the New Testament, and, and in my view, um, I mean, I had this discussion the other day about literal Adam. Right. And and that uh, Paul's teaching uh, in Romans five, for example, on the headship of Adam and Christ, he assumes um, a literal Adam. He assumes the truth of the Genesis account. So uh, I don't know if that
0: answers the question, but uh, yeah, in no way is it a rejection of the Hebrew Bible at all. Sure. Yeah. I'm reminded of the story of the guy who's down in his luck and he turns to his Bible and opens up randomly to a page to to get wisdom from God. And he, right. and he, he reads, uh, he opens up to one page, uh, Judas went out and hanged himself, and then he flips up another page and it says, go and do likewise. And so, yes. you know, j- j- so the Bible being inspired doesn't mean that you can take anything that's in it and say, this applies directly to me and my circumstances. That there is, so, yes. and so as we're reading about the, yeah. the, the Torah and the Old Testament, the law, um, it's inspired by God, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's our covenant.
1: Exactly. Yes, context is king, and you get yourself into trouble if you don't recognize
0: those contextual differences. So, you know, it, I, I really liked the way that you you, you kind of solved uh, your sort of solution and the way you sort of balance the texts, um, th- because as you read the New Testament, there's a lot of positive things that are said about the law. Um, you know, it's, it's obviously, as you mentioned, it's sort of used to explain Jesus's mission. It's treated as sort of predictive, as prophetic, as sort of part of this unfolding story. Um, But at the same time, um, there's also this kind of language of it being like sort of being set aside that it's passing away, that it's dead. Um, and that for, for Christians to kind of just co-opt it and take it is actually kind of like a bad idea. It's, you know, Paul looks at people who do that kind of thing and says, you know, I wish they'd just emasculate themselves because of the trouble that they're causing. Um, and so that's, that's a very strong statement. So, um, One way that I think that I've often heard people, uh, speak of the sort of way we've devised to help us with this tension of the law is great, but also, you know, cut off your genitals, um, is, um, this kind of threefold, talked about the threefold use, but the threefold division of the law. So the moral civil ceremonial, um, so that, you know, the moral start, the moral parts of the law still apply to us, but stuff about, you know, sacrifices and stuff like that, um, sure. that doesn't apply to us. And then most people would also say the civil stuff doesn't as well unless they're theonomists, which maybe we'll talk about a little bit later. Yeah. Um. So do you feel like that kind of threefold division, this part applies to us and these parts don't, does that help to get us anywhere as far as understanding how the, the apostles looked at the law? Um. I...
1: I recognize that is a theological category, but yeah. I don't think it's a biblical category because in the New Testament, when Paul chiefly speaks about the law, he doesn't speak about it with these qualifications. He simply says the law, right? The law brings wrath or, um, you know, in any of his um Teaching on this, he only talks about the law that's the single category he knows it's obvious that you can look at the Old Testament law in in the Torah and say well this is this is dealing with civil life in Israel when they were in the land, or this is this is dealing with sacrifices it's it's ceremonial law, but then it it becomes difficult, for example, if you look at the holiness code in Leviticus eighteen through twenty two that isn't uh, the Ten Commandments, but there's an awful lot of things in there that you'd have to say these are moral issues, and so often people when they say the moral law, they are referring to the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments. but you can't just excise that and say, "Well, this is the moral law because there's so many other things in the Mosaic law that that are moral issues, and I think the other thing that that becomes difficult is um, the moral law. If you say we're so bound by the moral law, there is almost inevitably the understanding that while there may be obligation, there is not condemnation for the lawbreaker. And I would say, and this isn't just me, um, if, you, if you remove the consequence from it, then you're not really talking about law anymore. You're, you're talking about suggestion. And so certainly uh, Christians are not condemned any longer. But along with that freedom from condemnation comes freedom from obligation. So the threefold use, uh, the three, threefold category of law, it, it, can, it can sort of uh, divert us from what Paul and the other New Testament writers are really saying. I think it's Galatians 3 where he says, he quotes Deuteronomy 27 and says, you know, curse is everyone who does not continue in all things that are written in the book of the law and do them. So there was, at least in Israel, uh, uh, an expectation that the law, uh, parts of it can't be set aside, parts of it can't be um, dispensed with. It's an all or nothing prospect. I lost your audio there.
0: Sorry, I had myself on mute while you were talking in case I coughed or something. Okay, so um I, I imagine someone listening who'd say, Okay, well if, if, if that's true that the that the law as a whole is gone, the covenant that covenant is gone and, and isn't ours. Uh, does that mean that we can, uh, you know, murder and and uh, uh, you know, commit adultery and stuff? And we may get to a little bit later just sure. what you actually think the standard is for Christians. Right. Um. But, but I think that that seems like an obvious place that somebody might go and say, well, obviously yeah. there are still parts of it that are, uh, right. So is is, is what's wrong with with that rebuttal? Yeah, and, and that is that is a frequent question I
1: had someone recently. Uh, read the book and said, is this, you really want to go there and say that, you know, we are free to do this. If you read, I would say carefully what I say, I don't say that. I don't say that we are free to do those things. But the reason we are not is not because we live under that covenant. It's because that the standard Christians now have is even higher. So you might be familiar with, uh, I think it's a game that, You'd see it at a state fair called High Striker, right, where um, you walk up to this contraption. Uh, it has a, uh, a long pole and a uh, uh, you get a mallet, you swing it, you hit the uh, plunger on the bottom. And if you hit it hard enough, it rings the bell at the top, right? The obligation or the, the calling that Christians have, I would say, is ringing the bell. It is Christ-likeness. It is christ likeness its following in his footsteps, when you ring that bell playing high striker, you're going to go past, you know, 70, 80. Let's say ringing the bell is 100. The law is kind of that 70 and 80. This is why I say the law is coextensive. with, or is, um, It's not contrary to what we're called to, but it's just not coextensive with it. It doesn't go far enough. So the law said, um, love your neighbor as yourself. But right before that, it says, you shall not bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. So in that context, neighbor is a fellow Israelite. Jesus tells us the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, the neighbor is, is actually an enemy of, of, of an Israelite. Yeah. And we read in, in John thirteen thirty four. now Jesus says a new commandment. I give you, you love one another as I have loved you. And that, that Christ-like love, that which he calls us to, was nowhere in the law. It is, it is way beyond that mm-hmm. standard. So it isn't a question, I think, of, of worrying that if we don't have the law, will we, are we free to murder? Are we free to do these? No. And the reason is not because the law is not our standard. The reason is because of Christ. The reason is because of the new nature we now have. The reason is we are now indwelt by the Spirit. We are called to walk by the Spirit. And all of those things are inconsistent with a spirit-led Christian life.
0: Yeah. Well an, an example that, that I that I think about and have used is uh, when Jesus is asked about divorce, right? And because and and they sort of come to him and say, well, you know, Moses allowed us to get divorced, and Jesus points to God's creation intent, and he points to the the uh, this, this kind of future perfect world, um, and and sort of says, well this is actually perfect and this is actually perfect. But here in the middle where we have the law is not actually perfect. <laughs> um, right. And so th- th- there's, there, there's something about it that um, it serves its purpose. And so it's, it's not flawed in the sense that it, it doesn't do what it, it was meant to do. It's just not, it's just not exactly, it's really, it's not how it, it doesn't sort of comport with God's created creation intention. Right.
1: Yeah. Um and, you know, Paul is uh, in a couple of places in Romans five and and in Galatians three as well. He even talks about the law, um, you know, coming into to magnify the trespass, right? Mm. To to actually increase sin. Um, the law, he says in in Galatians three, it became our our tutor, our schoolmaster, to to lead us to Christ. But having been led right it it's it, the illustration is you know someone reaching the age of majority who's no longer under the care of that tutor or that pedagogue, and his uh his appeal to the Galatians was, don't go back, don't go back mm-hmm. to that now that we've you know been
0: delivered from the law, yeah. Well it, it it's interesting I was as you said that I was just thinking about um something I've been working a little bit on in, in Galatians is um when Paul is talking to these Gentiles who used to be pagans and they're being encouraged to go back to the law and Paul almost kind of really says to go back to the law is as good as if you were going back to paganism. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> which which is really kind of fascinating and um and there's there's this kind of maybe debate about there's, there's this, this term he uses in Greek stoicheia, these sort of that's elements true. or something. Right. And, what, and is he talking about? Spiritual beings like these kind of, you know, the angels who gave the law and who are sort of put over the nations, who are hmm. sort of mediate God in some way, but aren't really perfectly right. revealing God. So anyway, that, that, that's that. Would, I'd love to get into that sometime, but it's a little off topic. Yeah,
1: yeah. He, and he uses that same word, that stoicheia, in uh, in Colossians too. Yeah, or Colossians also. I think it is actually Colossians too. <laughs> Uh, where he's he's talking about that same sort of thing, going back to observing days and 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 right. you know that sort of thing. But I the other point I I want to emphasize, along with the, you know the previous question you asked about, um, if we're not under the law, Christians can and should um, agree with Paul that the law is holy and righteous and good, and mm-hmm. so. The position that I'm advocating for is in no way um, denigrating that or or saying the law is bad. It is recognizing that the law in combination with our sinful flesh simply cannot produce holiness. And that as Christians now under the headship of Christ, we have been um, crucified and raised again with Christ. We're now positionally seated with him in the heavenly places. We're under a new head, and it's it's just a different paradigm. Um, in fact, Doug Moo, in his Romans commentary, he calls it a paradigm shift, right? Mm-hmm. And so, I think that that needs to be emphasized that when we embrace the, the spirit-led um, walk that we're called to, it, it's not um, it's not denigrating or
0: Speaking evil of the law, right? Yeah, it it seems to me that most people err um, because, uh, sort of, one extreme or the other because they can't hold these two things together. One is that the law is good, and the other is it's not. We're not bound by it. We're not under it, right? And so people seem to go one way or the other. Well, if the law is good, then we should be bound by it, and we should be forcing other people to keep it, and we should create a you know Christian nationalist theonomous state or whatever. (laughs) And then the other side is like this kind of well, you know. Maybe, you know, the law was bad. It's not really inspired, maybe. And, you know, so we don't. And so there's this, you kind so, of have to keep these two things in tension without going to one extreme or the other, right?
1: Yeah. And I think I think the way to understand that is to affirm that, yes, the law is holy and righteous and good. But because it belongs to a specific covenant and that covenant has come to an end, we can say that we don't live uh, by that standard any longer. I, I've used this illustration before. It's like, let's say someone emigrates from Australia to the U.S. Um, on a daily basis, that person is probably not worried about whether they're abiding by Australian law. Now, mm-hmm. it's, it's likely or probable that in a lot of ways, uh, U.S. law and Australian law are the same, right? And so, he doesn't think about that because he's no longer a citizen there he doesn't live there and so the land where the law prevailed in a sense is a is a land where christians don't, no longer live and so right. we it, it's not that we are well we're certainly not trying to disobey the law right. but it, it's it's just that we don't live there and Sure. The it's case, not illegitimate. It, it, yes, yes yeah so the place that we do live we have a different standard now
0: right good so and and just to be clear we talked about like, the ceremonial uh civil moral the, the law as a whole is 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 done away with that includes the 10 commandments we can't just sort of pull the 10 commandments out i, I know some people who do that i i, I was saved in a seventh day adventist church and they really emphasize the 10 commandments part specifically right. commandment right. four um yeah <laughs> and yeah. um and I've heard a lot of theonomists kind of do this as well and sort of Christian nationalists who sort of want to say, well, you know, yeah, maybe we can't, let's at least agree that we should have the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments should be sort of like almost like an encapsulation of natural law Mm -hmm. that everybody should be held to legally. right? Um, And so this distinction that you're making, we can't just pull, it also includes the Ten Commandments. We can't just pull the Ten Commandments out and say, well, this is still binding, but the rest of it isn't. Would that be correct? Yes, I would say so, for a couple of reasons. First of all, I mean, what you say about natural
1: law, I think, is true. One can affirm that. But things like um, murder and theft, one could say, people people know this innately. It's much more difficult to say that all of mankind would innately know that working on Saturday is wrong. Or even... Taking the Lord's name in vain when many many people don't know His covenant yeah. name, so right. there's some limits there to to natural law. But the other reason, and this gets to the what we were talking about before, to say that you know surely we can agree that the Ten Commandments are abiding, is to assign to the law a transcovenantal purpose. Right? It's to take it out of that soil of the Sinai covenant and say. This applies for all time and for all people and in second Corinthians three, I think what Paul says there makes that a very difficult case to make because right. it's clear he's talking about the Ten Commandments he talks about what is engraved on stone calls it a ministry of death and condemnation says it is passing away, and that right. what remains the ministry of the Spirit has a far exceeding glory so yeah, that and as well, you know, again in Romans seven, uh, he uses the tenth commandment as his example of you know this is what actually aroused sin
0: in me. So I think it's a very hard case to make for those right. reasons. Yeah, yeah. I would also add to the sort of things in the Ten Commandments that aren't so universal. Um, I'd like to think that the commandment to not covet my neighbor's slaves. Um, Shouldn't have a, a universal and binding application for me yes. today, because that would imply that we should have slaves. It's also not true, uh, as it says in Exodus, that I, as a Gentile, was brought out of the land of Egypt. Uh, which exactly. is also, I'm the Lord yeah. your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, right? That's right. part of the.
1: Yeah, and you mentioned, you know, the fourth commandment. That's that's kind of a good test case because, in one sense, I can make a case that the fourth commandment is is among the most important, right? Because Exodus 31, God delineates how, um, you know, he's given it to the people of Israel. And he says, above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. Right. So very important. Comes with a death penalty for those who break it. Right? Um, I have yet to encounter a church that, you know, takes it with that degree of strictness. Right. Usually what happens is people say, well, um, you know, we gather on Sunday and that's how we are, quote, keeping the Sabbath. You, I would say you <laughs> unlawful use of the law. You can't right. do that. You can't change the day when God was very specific. And even right. those who want to say, well, the Sabbath doesn't go back to Sinai. It actually goes back to creation when God right. rested on the seventh day. Well, that was the seventh day, not the first day. And yeah. I, I say in the book, Absolutely, God rested on the seventh day, but He didn't give Adam any command
0: that he should rest on the seventh day. Yeah, well, yeah, and my and my, uh, my seven day Adventist friends would say, well, the fourth commandment's the one that says remember, because the, the God knew that we'd forget what day it was and try to change it. <laughs> um, yeah, you're right. Yeah, so if you're if you're going to say that the law is binding, and specifically so binding that that you know it's reasonable to to have you know penalties for it. Um, then, yeah, you can't just go around changing it. So um, one thing that I like that you do, because I'd imagine somebody listening might sort of think, okay, well, if it's not my law, what do I do with it? And I like what you, um, the distinction that you make, that um, you write about how Paul doesn't cite the law of Moses as this kind of permanent and binding instruction, but as wisdom. Um, And so what's the difference between the two? Sure. So, and and a lot of
1: that um, idea about the law is wisdom or the law is prophecy comes from uh, Brian Rosner's book, Paul and the Law, Keeping the Commandments of God. Um, That's a book in the uh, New Studies in Biblical Theology series uh, from IVP, if you're familiar with that. Um, I would say that that book is one of the best books on this topic, um, as well as mine. (laughs) Um, But Rosner is very clear in talking about the way Paul sort of reappropriates the law. It's no longer commandment, it's no longer a legal uh, requirement, but he he uses it for wisdom. One example might be when he cites, You shall not muzzle an ox when it's treading out the grain, um, but he applies it for you know uh, financial support of of gospel workers, right? So there's an example, um, and even when he seems to cite some of the law. As, and someone would say, well, there you go. It, you know, we're, we're bound by it. Um, Ephesians five, where he says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. He gives his own apostolic instruction first. And then he cites the fifth commandment basically to say, this is consistent with what you would read in the law. And I, I argue as well that, that one of the chief, perhaps the chief, um, meanings behind honor your father and mother was actually financial support, right? And you get that in in the interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees in Mark seven, right? When he sort of castigates them for basically being greedy and not supporting their parents. And so Paul sort of reframes that and says, "Children, obey your parents in the Lord." Um, that's another use of where Paul reappropriates the law um, he still he still draws instruction he still draws wisdom from it but it is not a it is not a command um
0: a covenant that we are bound to good so th- does that include jews as well because i've heard some people say well the law was still binding for jews but just it's not for gentiles right yeah um i i think It
1: does include Jews um, because I mean I think I hope it was clear in the book that I I see a distinction that Scripture makes between Israel and the church. And while some say, well, the church is simply the continuation of Israel or the new Israel, I think based on what Paul says in Ephesians 2 and 3, it's not quite that simple. He talks about the church as a mystery that had not been revealed, now revealed. And in Galatians, he talks about really ethnicity not being a a mark of distinction. It is faith in Christ that makes us all into one body so that Jew and Gentile are now part of one body. I think that first generation was unique because you had Jews who really began under a functioning Mosaic covenant. Jesus arrives on the scene, he uh, conducts his ministry, he dies, he's raised again, the new covenant is inaugurated. And so these Jews were now believers. They actually, um, they were kind of like legacy old covenant uh, folks, right? And so for that first generation, I think, and and it's really for anyone, I would say, Paul, um, Paul prescribes liberty. Not obligation, so if you want to observe a day or you want to abstain from uh, some particular food, you are free to do so. but someone who says no I, I I want to partake that person is also free to do it, and so I would say it is it is faith in Christ that is the distinctive of this age, not ethnicity, so Jews are not under obligation any more than Gentiles.
0: Yeah, I I think in Galatians, yeah, it's Galatians where, um, I know it's Galatians, where where, um, Paul is talking about how Peter lives like a Gentile. Yes. Right. And and so, you know, Paul is very keen that that Gentiles not be forced to be circumcised, um, that it's not binding. But then he's also sort of willing to make sort of this concession and circumcise Timothy for a specific purpose. So there's this kind of all things are, lawful but not everything's beneficial you know paul also yeah. kept the feast and it was important to him and he valued it and it's also and all those yeah. things point forward to christ so there's nothing that's wrong with doing any of those things it's just a question of is it binding i think that really became for first front and foremost in paul front and foremost in paul's mind yes absolutely um so I, i've spent some time on this and so I, i'm i've I'm, I appreciated your book because i thought shed a little bit of, sorry, having a little trouble talking today. Shedded, uh, shedded a little bit of light on this uh, topic, but there's this kind of ongoing debate, um, and you find it especially with kind of the influence of the new perspective, and now some of the stuff, um, like Matthew Bates is doing the sort of Salvation by Allegiance stuff, um, which is, you know, what does it mean to be a real Christian? Does, does believing save us apart from doing good works, Are good works necessary? How do those things correlate? Mm -hmm. And I really liked this sentence in your book. You wrote, from apostolic times until now, it has been a perennial danger that we substitute law keeping for life, doing rather than being. And, And I like this sentence because I think it emphasizes what scripture emphasizes the most, not, you know, racking up good works to earn salvation, or even, you know, just believing, you know, without necessarily being changed by what we believe, but, but that we're, that we are our new beings. We're in Christ, Christ is in us. We're transformed by that. Um, and so good works sort of flow from that and, and it's expected and it's necessary, um, but it's not like we're, we're racking up merit, right? Um, yeah. Do you think an, an emphasis on this sort of being rather than believing or doing can help break through this kind of traditional dichotomy of faith versus works that seems to hang us up sometimes? I, I do. Um, and you're right, that
1: is a, uh, that's an old problem. Um, I mean, I, I'm old enough that I remember when John MacArthur released his book, The Gospel According to Jesus, I think this was the late eighties. And there were some other, um, books that were, you know, refuting it or trying to. Um, and I remember when I read MacArthur's book, the question that He's he's heavily dependent on the Sermon on the Mount and basically saying that this is your measure. You need to ask yourself, are you doing these things? Um, I think an honest person would say no one obeys 100% of the time. The question that, that MacArthur's book raised but never answered was, what percentage would my obedience fall below before my salvation comes into question? right? And I think the way I express this, uh, and this is not unique with me, but the difference between standing and state or position and condition, my standing as a Christian is dependent on and rests on the finished work of Christ. And it doesn't change. It's unassailable. It is unalterable. My state may indeed change from day to day. I may have a good day. I may have a or right, spiritually, right? If I make my assurance dependent on my state, I've I've reversed this. I've I've gotten it backwards. My assurance must rest on my position, my standing, and not on my condition, or my state. Now, I ought to uh, have a position, or have a condition rather, that closely matches my position. I ought to be trying to become more Christ-like all the time, that my condition does get closer and closer to my position. But to whatever extent I may uh, be able to do that, or to what extent I may fail to do that, it does not jeopardize my position in Christ, because that, again, rests on the finished work of Christ, not on my performance. Um... (laughs) So works in the Christian life, good works, we read about. But, you know, for the purpose of the book, good works in the New Testament are never associated with the law or with keeping the law. So that's another Mm -hmm. sort of important distinction, I think, that that Paul makes
0: in his teaching about the law. Yeah, yeah. Galatians is uh, always confused confused me because he sort of spends, you know, four or five chapters railing against the law and and, and seemingly against this idea of sort of meritorious works. Yeah. And then he sort of ends by telling them how they should behave. <laughs> and, um, yeah. And
1: that's and so, know, that's another, I guess, when you talk about being and doing, the illustration I've used is, is, you know, as as parents, we generally don't tell our kids, you know, if you behave, if you do what I'm telling you to do, maybe one day you'll become part of this family. Mm. We don't do that. We, we tell our kids what to do because they already are in the family. It's right. more or less saying, you are part of this family, now act like it. Reflect what this family is all about. And I think that's what a lot of the New Testament uh, imperatives are telling us. This is who you are in Christ. This is what being a son of God means. Behave this way,
0: right? So, uh, I'd I mentioned the you know the new perspective earlier, which, which for right. those who are unfamiliar, it's this kind of idea. So, Luther kind of brought this idea that what Paul is chiefly concerned about when he talk when he criticizes the law is this idea of being saved by works, any works, right? That um, that there's this distinction between being saved by faith, which basically just means sort of assent alone, versus um, being saved by faith and works. And what the new perspective sort of came in and did, and and just maybe to simplify it, is they sort of said, well, that's actually not really Paul's concern. Paul's concern is specific kinds of works um, of the law that sort of end up dividing Jew and Gentile. And so things like circumcision and keeping the feasts and the Sabbath and uh, clean and unclean food laws, th- things that sort of become a means of separation. Um, and... Um, So so then, of course, they have to sort of kind of go back around the other way and sort of backfill to sort of figure out, Okay, well, now, does that mean that we're saying uh, that we are saved by works and merit? And they say, well, no, that's not what we're saying. But then they have to kind of find another way to get to kind of get there. Um, And so I wonder how you kind of evaluate um, the new perspectives, contributions in this in this area. Um, do Do you are you? Are you on that? Are you in that camp? Are you not in that camp? Are you kind of in that camp? Where do you think they get it right? And where do you think they get it wrong? Right. Um, I would say I'm not in that camp. And my,
1: my reading on that hasn't been uh, perhaps as extensive as in other areas. But um, the book that um, I think, and this isn't just my opinion, um, I recall D.A. Carson saying that the best book to understand what the new perspective is all about, is Stephen Westerholm's book, uh, Perspectives New and Old, right? Hmm. Lutheran Paul and his critics. Um, I think what the new perspective chiefly is dealing with is, is justification. It's getting into the covenant and, and what was Paul saying about how that is done. Um, and as you described, they talk about what, chief concern was, were these boundary markers and Paul was wanting to um, bring down those boundary markers. I think that that may not get at all of what's going on. Um, Because again, that's sort of dividing the law into categories, keeping part of it, maybe, and and dispensing with other parts of it. Um, Yeah. But also that um And again, this is maybe where I'm not as well read on the new perspective as I should be, but I think in that it deals mostly with justification and not sanctification, I would say it's it's not necessarily um, you know germane to what I was trying to shoot for in the book uh maybe maybe being an advocate of the new perspective um I mean i have I have friends that that are more sympathetic with the new perspective, and that you know, go along um, with some of those ideas that you you mentioned, like you know, salvation by
0: allegiance and things like that. Yeah, it's 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 a lot of really interesting stuff. I mean, I, I personally feel that they've brought some sort of a corrective in one sense. I think we've kind of we missed the ethnic division stuff in a lot of ways because we wanted to focus on one thing. Mm. Um, but I'm not entirely persuaded. Um, I feel like the Salvation by Allegiance stuff gets closer somehow, but I'm still not completely there. Um, Anyway, just curious what you thought. So um, uh, I've kind of mentioned it in passing a couple times, but I may as well ask you kind of straight out. So the first time I read your book, I hadn't really done a deep dive into the arguments that were being put forward by theonomists and Christian nationalists, people who think that the law should be the basis of, uh, laws today, mm. uh, binding laws that have penalties up to and including death. <laughs> yeah. um, but but um, so when I first read, it, I hadn't really done that deep dive. But since then, I had and I kind of went and revisited it before our conversation. And I thought, man, theonomy really—you don't mention it, I don't think—but um, it almost felt like this like specter in the room because I, I kept seeing you touching on so many arguments that they were making. And maybe that's just because they're all reformed, and so there's there's a there's overlap. Yeah. Um, but um, so. But it it seemed like at at the times, like the arguments that you were making, almost just felt like aimed dead center at these sort of Christian nationalist variants. And so, I'm I'm curious um, about what your thoughts are on these movements, and in particular, this kind of idea that we're going to take the law and we're going to make it legally binding on non Christians. Right.
1: Yeah. Um, So, I would say I I didn't necessarily have theonomists in mind, but as you say, um, a lot of the things that they hold to are the things that I am critical of in the book. I think, I mean, the, where I'm on the opposite side with someone who espouses theonomy is, is again, um, they would not limit the law to the Mosaic covenant alone. They would embrace a transcovenantal view that the law is uh, binding for all time and all peoples, even though, as I read. Uh, Both Testaments, the law was given to Israel, to Jews only, not to Gentiles. And it belonged to that covenant at Sinai, which Paul says has come to an end with the inauguration of the new covenant. Um, I mean, you're right. There are a few people who are advocating for the application of biblical law um, as our governmental law up to and including the death penalty. I I guess I'd say at least they are consistent. In that, I
0: don't think there's any, there's any hope of that prevailing, but even if it did, yeah. Yeah. Maybe not the United States. I don't know if you saw, we're we're both on Twitter. um, Some of the folks in that camp uh, recently who were sort of applauding the decision, uh, the the new law, I think in Uganda, the the death penalty for, for, you know, multiple, we'll say second offense being caught (laughs) committing homosexual acts. Yeah. Um, Right. Yeah. Right. Um, I mean, yeah,
1: it's theonomy um, makes those mistakes. I think of of mixing the covenants together, of not seeing the distinct place in salvation history that the law has. And if you think it uh, was given to all people for all times, then you know I could see how they would arrive at that. But from my reading of of the Hebrew Bible, as well as the New Testament. Um,
0: I don't think that's true. So and I may ask one more question, just, just kind of in that vein, just because I'm sort of curious to get your thoughts because it's a subject that I I think and write about some, but sort of kind of following up on that. Um, you know, somebody who is in that camp would sort of say, well, if you're not basing, you know, um, Basing it on the law of God and the wisdom of God, then what are you going to be? What are, you, what are you going to build a society on? Right, the the magistrate that we read about in Romans thirteen is supposed to punish the evildoer, and we can't know what evil is if we're not reading God's law because He's the one who decides that. So, um, it, as as you sort of look, you know, you talk about how we have this sort of higher standard that we're held to, and um, many, in, including me, would sort of say that that sort of high standard of enemy love and you know self sacrifice uh, w- would kind of put us in this sort of a tension, um, with, um, sort of, I guess, government or the state as this sort of punishing, right. um, you know, uh, institution that uses violence. So, um, do you feel like our, um, the new covenant sort of places us in kind of a different category where we're kind of have to be sort of separate from that or, um, does is do we should we uh hold the state to um if we're trying to influence it uh are we trying to push um what you might call natural law what is our sort of christian responsibility as far as interacting with uh you know the laws of our own day yeah i, I
1: would say that um the illustration if you compare what um the parable of the tares in, in Matthew thirteen, right where there's um, wheat and the tares together, and the question is, do you want us to go and pull up the tares? And the answer is no. Wait until the end of the age. When you come to First Corinthians, however, and, and there's an issue there in that church, um, Paul says, "Put the wicked man out from among you." So there's there's a different way of dealing with sin in the church versus in the world. And he also talks about in the section on lawsuits there, what, what have I to do with judging the world, right? God will judge them. So I think if you extend um, that what the church is called to uh, sort of outside the church, right? Elders of a local church don't have authority Um, you know, in in the civil realm. And so, again, that sort of confusion is where theonomy goes. That isn't to say that we have no standard or we have no morality. Um, There is instruction. There is uh, doing what, you know, we're, we're to be concerned for what is right in the sight of all men, right? And so there is a standard of right and wrong that I would say goes back to that natural law uh, basis, and that Christians can embrace and uphold uh, without going as far as
0: theonomists want to go. So, so, so if I'm hearing you, kind of, I'm sort of imagining in my head here this kind of thing where you know uh, you have natural law, which we all sort of have access to. And then sort of higher up, you have the Christian imperatives, right? Things that we're supposed to be held to that we can't necessarily expect everybody to be held to who isn't a Christian. And then somewhere over here, we have the law of Moses, because it's almost like a different thing. You know, it's not really naturally, that's not really derived from natural law. It's supernatural revelation, but it's also not our covenant. So it doesn't really fit really in that continuum exactly. Exactly.
1: Um, Yes. And I would say on that, Point. and this this once again gets to this idea of the law being transcovenantal, because Paul I think it's Galatians three talks about the law uh, coming in four hundred and thirty years after the promise, right and he makes this comparison and elsewhere he says, you know sin was in the world before the law was given in other words, you can have sin without having um, a revealed law um, you know the, the law of Moses was not around when. God judged the pre-flood world for their wickedness. The law of God was was not around when Enoch it says walked with God, pleased God. So you can you can have right and wrong without the Mosaic law. Um again, that's natural law speaks to that question. The yeah. Mosaic law, you know, as a um I want to say artifact, but that makes it sound like uh, that it's, you know, something bad. It is it is a feature, let's put it that way, of the Mosaic Covenant. The church is no longer, the church is not part of that covenant. And so for that reason, you know, we can use it as wisdom. Um, we see it, it used as
0: prophecy, but it is not legal code for us. Yeah. Yeah, I was, I suspect you would agree with the theonomists in the, insofar as we would say morality derives from God. That doesn't necessarily mean he has to write it down for us to yes. know what it is. Yes, right. yes, for sure. Yeah. Well, um, I've kept you for about almost an hour here, um, so uh, maybe we'll, we'll wrap it up. Um, so in speaking with Matthew Ferris, he's the author of the book, If One Uses It Lawfully, The Law of Moses in the Christian Life. Highly recommend it. Uh, whether it's on sale for two ninety nine on Kindle, or, or or whether you got to have to buy it used for fifty bucks, it's worth reading it. Um, so, uh, where can people find out more about you, Matt? Uh, I've got gentlemantheologian.com com is where you blog and write. Is that correct?
1: Yes. Yeah, that's correct. Um, I'm probably most active on Twitter. charismatic uh, is my handle out there. Um, so yeah, really appreciate the time and the conversation today, Cody. It was it was great.
0: Uh, spending the time talking about this, yeah, thank you so much for making time. I, I really, I really appreciate it. And like I said, I, very sincerely, it was a wonderful book. It was really excellent, and um, I, I've, I've, like I said, read it twice and, and appreciated it both times. So it's helped me clarify some Thanks. things Thanks. Um, that I was Keep kind of moving time. in that direction. But just having you kind of put it all together was really helpful. Great, so thank, thank you. you.